Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. So NetHealth is hosting a three-part mini webinar series on Tuesday, March 9th, entitled From Purpose to Profits, How to Elevate Your Practice in an Uncertain Economy. After 2020, I think you're going to want to sign up for this. So you're going to hear from a panel of guests that have over 50 years of combined experience working in the PT industry. Sign up will begin tomorrow, which is Tuesday, the 23rd, February 23rd, for this mini webinar series. So head over to nethealth.com slash litzy to sign up. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y. So check it out and sign up now. Oh, and it's free. Okay, so this whole month we've been talking about ACL injury and rehab. So today's episode is with Dr. Ali Gokler. He has 28 years of experience as a sports physical therapist specialist. In 1990, he graduated with a degree in physical therapy from, I'm not even going to pretend to try and pronounce this, so you can just go onto the podcast website to find out where he went to school because I'm not even going to attempt it. Following his graduation, he worked in both the U.S. and Germany as a physical therapist. In 2003, he earned a sports physical therapy degree from Utrecht University of Applied Science. In 2005, he started a Ph.D. project at the University Medical Center Groningen Center for Rehabilitation. He is a researcher clinician and a clinician researcher with a passion for multidisciplinary injury prevention. He has over 40 peer-reviewed publications, and he regularly gives lectures worldwide in his free time. He loves to mountain bike. And uh, you can check out more from him and his research at motorlearninginstitute.com. Okay, so today we talk about just that. We talk about motor learning. So the process of motor learning, how patient autonomy is advantageous to rehab, how to motivate patients, how to measure uh, motor learning outcomes, on-field rehab models, and the importance of cognition and ACL rehab. And we talk about Ali's brand new model for motor, motor learning, which will be out hopefully in a month or so. So a big thanks to Ali. And of course, thank you all for listening to this month on uh, ACL injury and rehab. Hey, Ali, welcome back to the podcast. I am happy to have you on once again. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's been a while. Pleasure yes. to be here tonight. Yes. And so as People, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that this month has been all about ACL injury and rehab. And so what better person to have on than you to talk about kind of the rehab process after an ACL injury and your specialty, which is sort of motor, motor learning. So the first thing I want to ask you is, can you define motor learning? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question. And I've... I've uh 
uh, taken three, I think, important aspects of motor learning that I think are relevant for clinicians that listen to this podcast. Uh, the first one is in order to acquire motor learning, you need to practice. If you don't practice, you can't learn something. And that may be pretty straightforward, but I still think it's important. The second one, and that's a little bit of a vague one, but the learning process itself cannot be measured directly. It's only been been something that you can uh, measure indirectly. And I'll touch back on that a little bit later, what I mean by that. And the third point is what motor learning should result in is that it should lead to relatively permanent improvement of motor skills. And last year I gave the uh, example of riding how to ride a bicycle. For this year, I thought, hey, maybe skiing is a good example. And so if you've taken uh, ski lessons uh, as a teenager and you became uh, quite proficient uh, in skiing, it could be for many different reasons, for job or any other reason that you haven't been going uh, to, to the Rocky Mountains. But at the age of, uh, let's say, uh, 35, you have some time again and you have some financial resources. And you, hey, let's spend a week again in uh, Vermont or the Rockies. And maybe a little bit rusty at the beginning, but perhaps after a day or two, you get the hang of it again. So this is, I think, a, a great example of what motor learning means. It means that you acquire something and it sustains over time. Now, that needs to be distinguished from performance. And this is, I think, uh, one of my uh, key messages that I would like to point out to clinicians. When you work with your patient in the clinic and you have your patient doing an exercise, and this relates to my second point, is that motor learning is not directly observable. What you see in the here and now is performance. Now, I I can give you two examples. So let's say you have a patient after an ACL injury, uh, six weeks post-op, and you want to have your patient work on balance. Now, patient number one comes in and uh, stands on one leg, and actually what you're seeing, you're very happy, very stable, uh, not any uh, excessive movements, is able to uh, maintain balance for 30 seconds. Uh, Okay. You, you might be happy with that. Now your second patient comes in from the same surgeon, also six weeks post-op. And uh, when you have this patient perform the same exercise, you see that the patient sometimes needs to take the hands off the hips or needs to hold onto something or uh, puts the other foot down to maintain balance. And From these two examples, you may draw the conclusion that the first patient has better motor skills and has better learning potential. And the second one has poorer motor skills and is not such demonstrating good learning potential. We don't know. We only only know that performance in patient one is better for sure. Performance in patient B is not as good for sure. But that doesn't mean that this says anything about the learning potential. In fact, it may be that the learning potential in patient one is or has already been reached because this is at the max of his abilities, 
Whereas for the second patient with poorer performance, there may be a large learning potential. So that, that's, that's, I think, very important. And what you need to consider as a clinician is be careful how you interpret this process. Because what I know from my early days and also when I teach courses is that quite a few clinicians have a tendency to provide feedback because they would intuitively try to correct patient too, because you see that it's not able to maintain balance. So we need to say something. So we, and we usually do that in, uh, with feedback. And we typically do this with uh, corrective feedback. And uh, my second take home message uh, would be, be a little bit uh, uh, patient with your patient because learning takes time. So maybe unless you feel that there is an unsafe situation, but if that's not the case, let the patient practice and re-evaluate in a week or in two weeks time, but don't interrupt the learning process too soon. Uh, because when I go back to the skiing example, remember when you haven't been skiing for, um, uh, for uh, like 15 years or when you started to ski, it, 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 it was probably something like this. First day, quite difficult. Second day, oh, oh, still difficult. You might even get frustrated. Third day, uh, no improvement. However, on the fourth day, uh, snow, not being able to, uh, to ski, ski lift is closed. And on the fifth day means there was no one day without any skiing lessons. On the fifth day, you go out again. Hey, and all of a sudden you feel like, hey, hey, I'm, I'm better than I was on day three although you haven't practiced in the day in between. So this is what I mean. Learning is not only happening as you practice, but there is also some processing afterwards going on in your brain that helps to acquire those motor skills. Now, and if you interrupt that process, I quote, uh, by providing a lot of corrective feedback, um, you may actually, although with all good intentions, I don't want to dis disqualify that, but uh, maybe it's better to leave the process uh, uh, happening and evolve and then uh, provide feedback later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, um, have you ever heard the term helicopter parent? Mm -hmm. So it's the parent that's always hovering over the child, making the decisions, yeah. not allowing them any autonomy for themselves. And mm -hmm. so it reminds me of that helicopter therapist who's on top, like, oh, I see that if you use the example of balance, oh, I see that you struggled a lot with your balance. Why don't you try and do this? Well, why don't you do this? Try this, try this, try this. And, and yeah. in yeah. that, as a the therapist, are you taking away the autonomy for the patient and what kind of, how can that affect the outcomes for that patient? Yeah, that's an excellent point, Karen. Um, see, uh, motor learning as well as learning a language or learning math is a nonlinear process, which means uh, how you learned how to ride a bicycle was probably different from how I learned it. So, but what we typically do as clinicians, we have this, this, this clinical guidebook in our, in our mind map 
that we think based on our experience or based on our beliefs, how we need to guide our patients from simple skills to more advanced skills, from single task skills to dual task skill, whatever. Uh, however, we don't know how this patient is uh, actively engaged in this process. Actually, by the example that you were provided, uh, the, the patient is directed by the, by the parent uh, or, or, or the child is directed by the, by, the, by the parent and is actually a passenger. Now, I think one of the strong drivers of learning is intrinsic motivation. So what role do you give your patient if you direct them where, where, where to go, what to do, and also you give them corrective feedback? Uh, are these all strong drivers for self-organized learning? Um, I'm putting a question mark behind it. So people need to think about them for themselves. I can tell you what we do in, in, in our clinical situation, and that's based also on our research. Uh, we provide our patient, or in ACL injury prevention, we provide uh, a significant amount of uh, autonomy, which means an athlete or a patient gets a certain level, not complete control, but a certain level of control over the exercises. So they can choose, for example, out of uh, 10 exercises, they can pick uh, three exercises that they would like to do on that particular day in an order they would like to do. Uh, and we know from uh, a substantial body of research that providing autonomy during, uh, uh, during rehab enhances, uh, enhances learning. And I can tell you this from a research point, but I can also give you a brief insight from a recent survey that we've done uh, among uh, patients that completed their uh, rehab. And uh, we sent them uh, an open questionnaire about their experience in, uh, in the entire process of rehabilitation. And one thing that, two things that really stood out were a positive environment, a positive environment with relatedness of the therapist towards the patient and not as a patient, but as a person. That's quite important. So it's not a knee. It's not an ACL patient. No, it's a, it's, it's a person with an ACL injury. That's quite, quite, quite an important distinction. Uh, and the second thing that stood out was, uh, and you, you touched on that uh, before, is the autonomy, some self-control over the rehabilitation process. And this was a, a qualitative study that we uh, did. Uh, my PhD student, Walter Welling, uh, ran the study. So it's not something that I'm just saying as a scientist, but this is also what we get back from our patients when we ask them. Um, so, Going back to the clinical situation, uh, this is what we apply also um, by providing our patient with the opportunity, instead of me always providing the feedback, uh, I'm asking them or I'm giving them the opportunity, uh, please let me know when you want me to give you feedback. That is a, an, a great example of, uh, of autonomy. The, the, simple, the thing, simple uh, easy question. Yeah, and and you know what's 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 uh, what's quite uh, important uh, to understand is 
if, if we think uh, how humans preferably like to receive feedback, uh, if we if we if we ask a healthy population, and the same applies to uh, to an injured population, it turns out that around seventy percent of the of the people prefer to receive feedback after a good performance of an exercise. What happens in most clinical situations, with all good intentions, I I really don't want to question that, but we typically give corrective feedback, which typically means you didn't do something according to the standards of the therapist. That means that maybe seven out of the 10 people that you provide feedback to may not really like this. And this may affect their motivation. This may affect their learning potential because they like to receive feedback when something uh, went well. They, they conversely, they already know when something didn't go well and they don't need us to rub it in or to remind them. They already know. <laughs> so you, you touched on a word that I was uh, just going to ask you about, and that is motivation. So yeah. why is motivation key in motor learning? If you look, for example, at the brain activity of a person that is instructed to do something or you look at the brain activity of a person who has some control over what they're going to do, you have completely different brain patterns. And I can tell you that the second one, the second example, when you give them some control and when they can choose, they are much more engaged. And this is a prerequisite in order to learn something. Yeah. And, and I think we can probably all look back on our own personal experiences of learning, whether that be academic learning or learning a physical <laughs> task. I think we all like to have a little bit of control over that versus just have stuff thrown at us without our, in, without our input or without our thoughts on it. So I think that makes yeah. perfect sense. And now, mm -hmm. so we spoke about how motor learning is nonlinear why motivation and autonomy is so important. Now let's talk about, we've got this uh, patient with, uh, who had an ACL repair and they want to get back to sport. They, they, are, they are ready um, mentally. So we'll put that to one side. They're ready mentally. So let's talk about the return to sport uh, from a motor learning perspective? Um, in my opinion, return to sports is, um, we first need to define what we mean. And uh, I think uh, the 2016 consensus meeting uh, gave us some leeway in that direction. And I think one of the most important things that stood out is that it's a continuum. It is not one moment in time. And I think what I read in the literature often is, is that it's such a uh, dichromatous choice, yes or no, at, at six months or nine months, whatever you're, you're, you're believing in. Um, I think what we need to understand is, is certainly in light of the high number of uh, second ACL injuries, particularly in the young population in, in, in pivoting type sports, that's number one. But also the second one is that you know, only 
I think a disappointing percentage of people reach their pre-injury level. So their performance is not up to par. So do those two factors, when we, when we look at that, I think it all starts uh, prior to, uh, to the surgery. And so um, the prehabilitation, I think is one of the key factors that we need to, that we need to uh, consider anything that's left unaddressed will show up even in higher magnitude after the ACL reconstruction, which was the second trauma to the knee. And, and then and during the entire uh, rehabilitation process, something very simple, and I can't stress that enough. If, if walking is not normal, and how do, how do many clinicians assess a normal gait pattern? They usually ballpark it. But you know, even a slight deficit of five degrees is clinically meaningful. And now, now just follow some logical sense. If your walking is not normal, what do you think will happen with the running? What, what do you think, what would you expect how, how the squat will be executed by the patient and how will a single leg hop will be done or a drop vertical jump? So I, that, that's why I think that all these um, uh, elements from a motor learning perspective, and also and we'll touch back on it a little bit later, of course, sound strengthening program, you know, no question about it, very important. But I think uh, it, is, it is very important to also incorporate the motor learning process so that we make sure that the patient is learning or relearning those motor skills. But mo and, and I, ca I can also stress enough, it's also important that we as clinicians really, really measure. And Bardingen and I, we just completed and published a study uh, among Flemish uh, physiotherapists. And uh, one of the things that uh, came out of this study is that many don't use the evidence-based principles, meaning also they don't use the criteria as they don't assess. And in order, and that's also coming back to motor learning, if you want to ascertain that learning has taken place, you need to measure. Otherwise you can't, you can't be sure that the patient has learned something. And how do you, what are some examples that you can maybe give the listeners of how you measure uh, these yeah. motor learning outcomes? Because I think that's yeah. important to let people kind of wrap their heads around that. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and be right back. On Tuesday, March 9th, NetHealth is putting on a three-part mini webinar series entitled From Purpose to Profits, How to Elevate Your Practice in an Uncertain Economy. After 2020, you're going to want to sign up for this. You're going to hear from a panel of experts that have over 50 years of combined experience working in the PT industry. Sign up will begin tomorrow for this mini webinar series. So head over to nethealth.com slash litzy to sign up. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y. Yeah, so I use, and that's something from, from the business that you probably know, the, the PDCA cycle, the plan, do, check, act, and uh, the P, and the plan, which means you do a baseline test. So first you need to, let's say, balance. So does the patient have a balance deficit, yes or no? Uh, you can use uh, the star balance test. You can use... Uh, the, the, the balance error scoring system. That's your baseline test. Now it's up for you as a, as a physiotherapist with your clinical reasoning, does the patient need an intervention to target 
balance, yes or no, or are we happy with? But let's assume, no, there is a balance deficit. Now we go uh, to the do, which means what is my intervention? So my intervention could be, I'm planning to do balance training for four weeks with uh, two therapy sessions in the clinic and uh, four sessions at home, consisting of those and those exercises. Uh, and then in between, I'm doing uh, an interim evaluation. Is the patient going on track as I'm expecting or not? I can still fine tune my, uh, my intervention program, a training program. Uh, and then I do a final assessment after, uh, after uh, two weeks and preferably even one a little bit later on as well to make sure that the effects of the balance training are really sustained over time. Yeah, remember what I said about riding a bike or uh, skiing. Uh, and that's a very simple uh, procedure you can use. Uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of time, um, but it's, it needs to be integrated in your daily practice uh, because if you don't measure, you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love that. I think people can get behind uh, that PDCA cycle. And because, you know, PTs love um, things that are regimented. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. and you know, things that sort of follow a plan. So I think this is uh, really easy and I think people can get behind it. And I also think that it will keep your patient on track and keep you on track and organized versus mm -hmm. just like throwing whatever up against the wall and seeing what sticks. Exactly. If you measure it, you're, you know, uh, you're, you kind of know where this patient is going and yeah. that makes all the difference. Yeah, which which uh, that, that's a good point that you uh, I, I forgot to mention it. Actually, in the in the in the planning cycle, I'm uh, incorporating my patient. So I'm discussing uh, the baseline test, and I'm asking my patient. So you have a, a balance deficit. What do you think is needed for you to improve your score? What do you think is uh, could be if you score? Uh, uh, eight out of 10. So zero would be no balance error. 10 would be the maximum errors that you can acquire. So you have an eight. What do you think is reasonable to achieve in two weeks time, for example? And then the patient could say, yeah, I think I'm, uh, I can reach a seven. Hey, that's interesting information. Why, why are you so conservative? Uh, why, can't, why can't you challenge yourself from, from an eight to a four, for example? So I always creating this interaction with my patient uh, you know, I can, uh, in conjunction with, with, with me and my patient, I can set goals that, and that's quite important as well, that need to be challenging for the patient. Because if you, if you already are good or something, you're not challenging and it's not challenging anymore. If it's too difficult, then, you, then it's overreaching. But it, it has to be something that the patient sees, okay, I, I, I really got to put some effort into this. Yeah, and I Which would think- is, again, Oh, go ahead. Which is again, something for uh, important for learning. I was just going to say that I said from a motor learning standpoint, if you do nothing that gives a substantial challenge to your patient, are they really going to see the benefits of yeah. those exercise or of your plan? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. That makes and perfect sense. And, and, and also going back to, uh, to the first example with the two patients uh, with the balance exercise, if 
if I give my patient an exercise, it is usually an exercise that creates difficulty for them. So if I see a perfect demonstration, then I'm kind of thinking, yeah, what is the learning potential here? So I purposely make the exercise a little bit more difficult right away. And I explain that to them. Uh, I'm explaining to them, don't expect to, to master this exercise today or tomorrow. And I always give that example of, of uh, riding a bike. And, and a lot of patients like that because, oh yeah, I remember that. I fell down quite a few times. And, uh, and that, that's in ACL rehab, it's, it's more or less the same process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I also want to uh, switch. Well, this isn't really switching gears, just moving forward. So sure. yes, we know that return to sport is a continuum. You've got return to sport and return to performance, different things. And uh, one of the things that I spoke about with Nicole Sertica is the importance of on-field rehab. So I know that's uh, something that you're also passionate about. So do you want to kind of tie that into um, what what therapists can do on-field to continue to foster this motor learning uh, within their sport, whatever that sport may be? Yeah, um, I think that's that's uh, something that's underappreciated, and and maybe that's um, because we haven't really integrated the, the motor learning processes uh, in our rehab. And and one of the things that we have to consider is when you observe your patient in the clinic and you see a certain motor behavior. That's all what it means. It stems down to the interaction between the environment the task at hand could be a jumping exercise, could be a single leg exercise, whatever. Uh, and, 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 and the behavior that you're seeing. So there is a task athlete environmental interaction, which means the movement that you see from that interaction only is valid for that interaction. You cannot extrapolate a jump landing strategy from a box in a physiotherapy clinic and uh, imagine how this athlete would uh, play uh, lacrosse or American football or soccer. It's completely different game, completely different world. So I think that's where uh, one of the main reasons uh, why single leg hop test in, in, accessed by, by, by Kate Webster and, 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 and Tim Hewitt were shown not to be valid uh, predictors of, of a second ACL injury because a hop test is something completely different than how an athlete performs on the field. So in, in, in that regard, uh, I, I think we need to take the patient to the field and to see how the patient is performing based on that interaction that I just refer to the test, the environment, and the athlete interaction. And then you get meaningful information where that, where that patient is, uh, uh, is, is at, which, for example, also means that one-on-one training is not what's needed for a football player. They are team ball athletes. So you need to do something with the ball. You need to be on the turf, and you need to do something with teammates and opponents. That yes, when you're working with someone with a team sport, you have to have those other um, 
I don't want to say distractions, but, you know, other people, a ball, uh, scanning a field versus just going one-to-one with you. Yeah. And uh, we, we've just completed an analysis of uh, 47 non-contact ACL injuries in Italian professional football. And this is a work that I've done with uh, uh, Francesco Della Villa from the isokinetic group. Mm-hmm. And what we did is we, we looked at the injury mechanism through a different lens. And what we, uh, the lens we used was a neurocognition lens. So we looked at the inciting events that happened before the ACL injury took place. Because so far, the literature is predominated by the dynamic valgus collapse. And I totally agree. I totally agree. However, it doesn't tell you what led to the injury. It just tells you what the endpoint is. That's dynamic valgus. Now, and what we've done now is what are now some typical events occurring during uh, a match play in which uh, non-contact ACL injuries took place. And we, we took two neurocognitive uh, factors. One is the selective attention. So are you able to maintain attention to the relevant information and disregard and filter out irrelevant information? And the other one is, did we see some impulsive behavior of defenders? And they were running into a situation uh, in which basically the attacker waiting for them to approach. And then at the last moment, they made a deceiving action that the uh, defender did not anticipate. And now in a very small time frame, the defender had to change the movements in a time frame that you don't have enough time to coordinate those movements well. So if you think about this as a framework, how injuries may happen, we also need to consider this framework, how we integrate that in our rehabilitation process. And this is what I do from day one. And certainly this is what I do related back to your question for the on-field. This framework we use for the on-field rehabilitation. And I've created a model uh, for that. Yeah, so I was just gonna say, I know that you created a model and it's gonna be published soon. So let's talk about what that model is And if you can kind of walk us through that, that would be great. So the the model is, uh, it consists of three main pillars. The first one is neurocognition. And neurocognitions, you need to think about reaction time, decision-making, selective attention, as I mentioned before, but also your ability to control impulsive behavior. That's called inhibition. Can you, can you change your intended movement? Yeah, that's something to control your, your impulses, very important. Working memory is another aspect. So those are the neurocognitive components. Then we have the motor component. And I think that's where most physios will be quite uh, familiar with. So we think about strength, range of motion, uh, endurance, speed, things like that. Yeah, that, that's, that's, I think, pretty straightforward. Then we have the sensory part. So in the sensory part, we can have uh, the visual component. So we can uh, alter the visual input, maybe quite relevant for ACL rehab uh, as uh, Dustin Grooms has already shown. And also my colleague in Paderborn, Tim Lehman has demonstrated that with EEG. 
that the patient may have some visual reliance, but also things like, do you have your patient uh, do uh, training with uh, shoes on? Uh, is you, are you playing uh, on the hard surface, soft surface, lighting conditions, auditory uh, information? Now, those three factors, neurocognitive, motor, and, and the sensory part, what I did in my model, I created like a gauge. So I can create an exercise combination in which I have a relatively simple motor skill. So not so demanding, standing on one leg, for example. But what happens now if I add more cognitive load? For example, by having them do uh, math subtractions or uh, working on the synaptic uh, sensory station by doing motion object tracking. Now I can see what the influences is of an added neurocognitive load on my motor part, because those three shape my functional movement coordination. Likewise, I can turn back my neurocognition bit a little and stay with the same exercise and do now something on the sensory part. And this is what we all do as clinicians. So we do a single leg balance exercise and we have the patient stand on, uh, on, the, on the foam surface or we have them close their eyes. So we are already doing this, but I think the model can help you. How do I plan my exercises within one rehab session? And I'm changing that from week to week. And why would this be important? Well, first of all, we always need to consider that we have, we need cognition during our motor control. And if we only work on pre-planned activities that, that are often happen, we miss something exactly what you pointed out already from the on-field situation. They have to perceive a lot of information. They have to process that information and then execute the movement. And here's where cognition comes in. And if we do this by being aware of that we can use these gauges, what we do is we actually create a rehab environment that we call in part of board, and we call that an enriched environment in which we constantly provide different stimuli to the patient. That means the rehab from week one to week two is not the same which means variation, something new, something I haven't done before. Again, this could already affect motivation significantly. And I can tell you from experience, patients love this. The second benefit would be, since you're providing different stimuli, you're actually confronting the brain every time with a new situation and the brain has to find solutions. And this is, I think, very important also from a motor learning perspective that we need to uh, consider to enhance the neuroplasticity of the brain because an ACL injury is not just a peripheral ligamentous injury. It is also a neurophysiological lesion. And that's, I think, needs to be considered in rehab. I mean, I, I have to say for me, I really like this model because it, it, it gives you a great way, like you said, to plan out your sessions so you can maybe enlarge the motor component one day or take it back another day, do more neurocognition, move that back, do more sensory. 
do sensory and motor, maybe not so much neuro, do a little bit of all three. So it's sort of like, I just sort of see the Venn diagram just expanding and contracting with all three of those bubbles, which I think is really great. And like you said, it gives you, it's almost from a, a therapist standpoint, a clinician standpoint, I feel like it gives me permission to play around and, and come up with some fun things and be a little more original. Yeah, and I think what it also does, uh, it, it, uh, it may help you as a therapist to get a better understanding where some underlying deficits may be. Because um, we only, we, t- we typically like to measure the outcome. So let's say I'm doing an agility course and I'm just looking at, uh, at the time. And then I see, oh, the patient is not so fast. So I need to do more uh, training. Well, what you could maybe do is try to entangle a little bit and to see if the patient uh, from the motor perspective has all the necessary requirements in, in order to be fast. Maybe there's a deficit there, but let's assume it's not the case. So all, all the strength, uh, all the re- uh, rate of force development, all these parameters are, are satisfactory. That must mean that there's something else in the system that can't cope with the demands. And that could quite well be that there is an underlying neurocognitive deficit. And this may help you as a therapist to work more on those neurocognitive elements with the intended goal that the patient becomes faster, but maybe not mm-hmm. so much by doing more uh, plyometrics and, and, and doing more speed. No, working on the neurocognitive aspects. Yeah. So it's, it's a, a treatment plan as well as an evaluative tool uh, to kind of mm-hmm. see where some deficits are and how you, you and your patient together can plan to move forward. It sounds great. When, um, when will this be widely available? I hope we have it out in a month, the time from now, uh, depending on, on the, on the publication process, yeah. but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. please stay tuned. Okay, perfect. And we will let, we will let people know. I will put it on social media when that is out. So that sounds great. Well, I mean, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I've been taking copious notes. I think this was great. Um, Before we get into where people can find you, I have one last question and I ask everyone this, and that's knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to your, to your younger self? Good question. I think what would have helped me uh, if I would have spent more time in the neurological field. Mm. I, I think uh, in, in uh, what I still see uh, or with uh, colleagues that work with pediatric patients, I think uh, some of the uh, motor learning principles that they use could be very beneficial for us working with more orthopedic sports related injuries. Um, that's something I didn't understand back then because my interests were solely in, in the sports domain. But in retrospect, I should have spent more time in, in the neurological and pediatric field. Great advice. And great advice for anyone who is maybe at that starting point in the sports or orthopedic rehab world and trying to figure out, hey, what is there something I'm missing here? So I think that's great advice. Now, where can people find you and find all this great stuff, all your great info? All right. So we have a, a website uh, from our company uh, and our companies serves as the, uh, hopefully as the intermediary between academics and the clinical field. I, I work in both fields. 
uh, I'm, I'm a clinician, I'm a researcher. And with our uh, platform, actually our community, Motor Learning Institute, we want to create a bridge between the academic field and, and the clinical field. Because I think um, we can all uh, improve, but we need to uh, find each other and we need to speak the same uh, language uh, and have respect, mutual respect for one another. And uh, if we engage in, uh, in such a culture uh, by exploring, by facilitating one another, I think we can create uh, a lot of new things and approaches with the overall purpose to help our patient. Um, this website will be uh, updated in a month from, uh, from now. So we will we'll be offering completely new courses which also have the opportunity to get uh, coaching from us. So it's not frontal education, but we offer for every course participant to uh, receive uh, live or uh, written feedback on, on their progress during the course, because our premise is that we want to create the course in such a way that you can apply it into your setting after you've completed the course. That sounds amazing. And we will have links to, uh, to the website. We'll have also put the link up to your research gate profile so that if people want to look at some of the papers that you mentioned today, they can just go there and see all the papers that you have authored and co-authored, who I think would be really helpful. Um, and uh, if people want to find you on social media, where's the best place to reach out to you there? Uh, would be Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Perfect. And what are the handles? If you know them yeah. offhand. Motor Learning Institute. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So um, thank you so much. And like I said, I will have everything available um, uh, up on the website at pod podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So Ali, thank you so much for coming on again. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Karen. I really uh, want to say thank you so much for setting this up. I think this is exactly what we also stand for, that we create a, a platform in which we can exchange our ideas. We can ask one another questions. That, that's the best way, I think, to move forward. So really thankful for you to organize this. And yep. uh, Pleasure. And uh, so everyone, thank you so much for listening. Have a great couple. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy and smart. Well, a big thank you to Ali for coming on and sharing all this great information about motor learning as it relates to ACL injury and rehab. And of course, thank you to our sponsor, NetHealth. So remember, on Tuesday, March 9th, NetHealth is putting on a three-part mini webinar series entitled From Purpose to Profits, How to Elevate Your Practice in an Uncertain Economy. You're going to hear from a panel of guests that have over 50 years of combined experience working in the PT industry. Signups will begin tomorrow, which is February 23rd for this mini webinar series. So head over to nethealth.com slash litzy to sign up. Once again, that's nethealth.com forward slash L-I-T-Z-Y. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.